Grace and peace to you in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes I feel a little bit sorry for the disciples, and I wonder if you don't feel the same way. Rather than being given straightforward explanations of what Jesus is trying to get at, he constantly speaks in parables, particularly in the passages of Matthew that we've been studying the last week. And I'll give a personal confession. I really don't like parables. I would much rather Jesus just say what he's trying to say in a straightforward manner. I don't like the guesswork. I don't like the things that I have to engage in in order to try to figure out what he's getting at. It would be much easier if Jesus would just say, the kingdom of heaven is this, rather than the kingdom of heaven is like. How is the kingdom of heaven like a mustard seed? So you have to go through all the mental guesswork to try to figure out what Jesus is getting at here. But there's a reason that Jesus goes through parables. And in those times where I'm frustrated and I don't particularly want to do all the mental work of trying to figure it out, I'm reminded that Jesus uses parables as a way to engage his audience that the audience wouldn't typically engage or wouldn't normally engage in. This kingdom of heaven speech in particular, as he's describing the kingdom of heaven to people, this is a familiar term to his audience. The Jews fully expected that God was going to usher in a physical kingdom of heaven. You remember last week we spoke of Jacob and God's promise to Jacob that he's going to give him a kingdom of sorts. He doesn't use the word kingdom, but that's essentially what it comes down to. He says, I'm going to give you a land. And on this land, you and your descendants are going to come back eventually and you're going to inhabit this, this land. We tied that to gospel peace. Well, for the Jews, they'd already lived on this land for a period. And so they began to tie the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, very specifically to the land that we now recognize as having historically been Israel. What Jesus does by introducing the metaphor of a mustard seed is he begins to rattle some of these foundations about what to expect for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. They were expecting a physical fulfillment But a physical fulfillment doesn't go exactly with this picture of a mustard seed. Because with a mustard seed, it starts very, very small, and then it blooms, it flourishes. Well, to the Jews, the land was the land. There was nothing that needed to grow. There was nothing that needed to flourish. Land, a land mass that God is going to give to you, is a set quantity. It just is. And so this idea of growing and flourishing would have been a new understanding, a new way of looking at the promise of the kingdom of heaven. So they expect a restoral of a physical kingdom, but Jesus shows them through the example of the mustard seed, through the mustard seed, that restoral is something that will start small and progressively grow. Well, as I was considering the text this week, It dawned on me that really when we talk about the mustard seed, when we talk about what the foundation is or what the the smallest thing is that helps the entire nation to grow, the entire nation of Israel, the entire kingdom of heaven to grow, we have to look at Jesus as the mustard seed. Jesus is the mustard seed. Without the mustard seed, nothing grows. Unless there is first a seed, nothing can grow out of the seed. And as a result of that, you have to say that the seed is the foundation upon which all growth finds itself. And in this way, we understand that Jesus 
objectively, objectively accomplishes the salvation of the entire world. Jesus is objectively ushering in the kingdom of heaven by who he is. And so just as a tree can't grow out of nothing, a mustard tree can't grow out of nothing, neither can the kingdom of heaven grow out of nothing. And so just as that mustard tree relies on a seed that was there first, the kingdom of heaven, as it grows and flourishes, relies on the work of Jesus. The church has historically understood a number of different ways Well, the church has historically understood that Jesus does objectively accomplish salvation for all of humanity. And what that objective element means is that independent of how you and I respond to the gospel message, Jesus has completed the work of salvation. There have been a lot of different theories on how he's done this. They're referred to as atonement theories. Atonement simply means to make one with. And so through the atonement, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus makes us one with God. There have traditionally been four primary views of how God, how Jesus accomplished this. And I'll throw an extra one in there because I think it's actually uh, more important and uh, the the theme is more striking than even the four that I've been presented with uh, primarily. Those five objective views all recognize that Jesus is the one who accomplished our salvation. He is the seed from which all growth can come out of. The first view, which was most prominent in the early church, is what's referred to as ransom theory, as a ransom view of the atonement. In this view, all of humanity, all of humanity is bought by Satan, essentially, we, are, we cannot overcome the clutches of evil. We can't overcome the clutches of Satan. And as a result of that, Jesus comes to earth in order to pay Satan a ransom. In doing this, he overcomes evil. He overcomes the clutches of Satan. And he makes it possible for you and I to once again have communion with God. If you want to think of it, as, uh, if you want to think of it in terms of a person who's kidnapped... When a person is kidnapped, what do we say happens? A ransom is paid. Well, if you want to think of Satan as the kidnapper and Jesus through the atonement, through his work on the cross, pays a ransom to Satan. So that's the earliest view that we find in the church. Closely tied to that is Jesus' conqueror. That Jesus overcomes sin that he overwhelms uh, evil in the world by taking evil upon himself. And as a result of that, he makes it possible for us to have communion with God again. And in addition to that, and my personal favorite view of the atonement, the one that I believe is most scripturally clear, is the view of recapitulation. That Jesus does the work that by coming to earth, Jesus does the work that Adam failed to do that our first ancestor failed. And so Jesus makes right what Adam made wrong. In this way, he relives, he recapitulates the life of Adam, but he does it in the way that Adam was supposed to do and failed to do. Now, in addition to that, one might say that what we are called to then do is recapitulate the life of Christ. 
that just as Christ relived and perfected the life of Adam, we are then called to live into the life of Christ. And in this living into the life of Christ, we participate in the life of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's recapitulation. We are reliving the life of Christ because Christ relived the life of Adam in perfection. The fourth theory came up in the 11th century uh, by a theologian named Anselm of Canterbury. He was a fine theologian and he came up, or he expressed what he believed was um, Jesus' work as primarily providing satisfaction for sin. And it, the, root of this, um, the root of this view suggests that God's honor is offended, that sin offends God. And as a result of this offense, a, a, a satisfaction needs to be made for the sin. And so Jesus serves as the satisfaction. If you want to think of it as sort of a, a, a paying back of a debt, we owe a debt of honor to God. And so Anselm says that because we're not capable of paying back that debt because we are by nature sinners, it was necessary that a perfect human and perfect God came to earth in order to satisfy the requirements of paying that debt. And so Jesus satisfies the requirements of holiness. And then finally, in the 16th century, the reformers kind of took that satisfaction theory and expanded on a bit and created, I would say, um, a theory of atonement referred to as penal substitution. In this idea, God is very angry with our sin, and Jesus comes and pays the penalty that we cannot pay for ourselves. And so in this sense, he is our substitute. He pays the penalty by being the substitute for us. Now, I can tell you that there are some of those theories of atonement that I don't particularly agree with, There are some that I agree much more with, in particular, recapitulation in Jesus as conqueror. But in all of these views, there is the understanding that Christ has objectively, apart from how we respond to it, Christ has atoned for the entire world. Christ has done all the work that is necessary for us for our salvation. And so we believe that Jesus literally accomplishes our salvation through his life on earth, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection. However, that work, that mustard seed, that foundation upon which the entire church flourishes is not fully realized until, like the mustard seed, the proclamation and living into that work expands. There's always a relational element to what God wants to do. It's not enough that he does what he wants to do. He then wants that expanded into the world, expanded out to us. And so the objective accomplishment is always tied to relational expansion. What Jesus objectively accomplished on earth through the atonement is tied to a relationship that flourishes and grows just like the mustard seed. I think today's Old Testament lesson gives us a helpful picture of maybe what this looks like. It's not a perfect parallel, but it does draw on some parallels. 
we have Jacob and Rachel. Jacob is deeply in love with Rachel. And so he asks Rachel's father, Laban, for her hand in marriage. Laban offers that hand if Jacob is willing to work for seven years. And Jacob does that work. But instead of giving him Rachel, Laban deceives Jacob and gives him Leah. And Leah, there, uh, Jacob then asks, why have you deceived me? And he says, well, it's not our way to give away the daughter the first, uh, to give away the secondborn first. Work for me another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel as well. Well, Jacob loves Rachel very much. And so he decides that he's going to go ahead and do this. So he works for another seven years. Fourteen years he works for the love of Rachel. He works for Rachel. That's the sort of love that I believe God has for us. It's a patient love. It's enduring Nothing, no amount of time or toil could separate Rachel from the love of Jacob. And understand, it doesn't say in the text that there was anything that Rachel did in order to earn Jacob's love. He just loved her. He wanted to marry her, and so he was willing to wait. Neither time nor treachery. Her suitor was patiently and deeply in love with her. Well, isn't this a beautiful parallel to Paul's explanation of Christ's love for us? And let's go over that again. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as Jacob just as Rachel couldn't be separated from the love of Jacob, you and I cannot be separated from the love of Christ. That love was expressed objectively, again, that word objectively, through his entire life on earth. And so you can't change how Christ feels about you. He loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That incorporates all of creation, every man, woman, and child that has ever been born. And so what Christ did is love you, and he continues to love you. There's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing I can do about that. That's just how it is. This kingdom, going back to the idea of kingdom, the way that we spread that message, the way that we express that message, that is the fruit. That is the growing of the mustard seed. That is the spreading of the branches to the point that it becomes a tree. We experience, we experience Christ's love, and then we share that love. We go about expanding the kingdom. When we share the gospel with others, we participate in growing and spreading the kingdom. Well, how do we do that? You know, sometimes it's easy, it would be easy for a pastor to say, you all need to go out and evangelize your friends. You all need to go out and find people and express to them the love of Jesus Christ. But that always, that always assumes one thing that simply can't be assumed from a pulpit. It assumes that you actually do love Jesus Christ. It assumes that you are kingdom living that you're opening yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit every day. And as a result of that, you want to share the gospel message. But I can't assume that. I can't assume that you're enjoying that sort of relationship. So what I can encourage you toward today is to take steps 
toward having the kingdom grow in you so that you can share it with others. Be in prayer. Read the scriptures regularly. You simply cannot share the gospel with other people with depth and with sincerity and with love, the sort of love that Christ shows us. If you're not engaged in the gifts that God gives to you, for the growing of the kingdom in yourself. Think about what the scriptures are. They're God's revelation to you about who he is. If you're not engaged in reading the scriptures on a regular basis, how can you possibly be, expect to know how to share the message of God's love with others? That is one of the ways that God shares his love with you. If you're not praying on a regular basis, if you're not in the primary means through which we grow in relationship with God, how can you share that with others? How can you share the heart of Christ with God or with, uh, with friends, family, whoever it may be, if you're not living in the heart of Christ through prayer, through relationship? Really, that's all prayer is. You know, the, the things that we do on a Sunday morning, the prayers that we offer, those are good forms, but they're intended to drive you into the heart of God. They're not merely words that we're saying that are supposed to bounce off the wall. They're means by which we come into the heart of God by announcing who God is and announcing who we are in God. So we need to be praying regularly, receiving the Lord's Supper regularly. You know, John Wesley believed that it was the responsibility of every Christian to receive the Lord's Supper as often as he or she could. Because John Wesley recognized that when the Lord's Supper is received, we are actually living that upper room promise. We're living the Lord's Supper today. And so as a result of that, he called on us to to receive that sacrament as often as we can. And so all of these things, prayer, scripture reading, the Lord's Supper, all of these things grow the kingdom inside of us so that we can then grow the kingdom in the world. And the reality is this, as the kingdom grows in you, you're going to want to share that with other people. As the reality of what God has done for you and who God is for you takes hold of your life, you will have a desire to share that with other people. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. It doesn't have to be something where you have a five-step thing where you get a person to make a decision. It's just introducing them to God, bringing them into relationship with God. It's not fancy. It's not uh, some, it doesn't have to be some overly spiritual exercise in trying to get them to make a decision. It's just introducing them to God because really that's what God does to us. I've known some people who are Christians who have had very, very spiritual experiences the moment they come into contact with God. I've known other people whose walk seems a little more subdued. God works in both of those things. The reality is that not everybody's relationship with God looks precisely the same. My rela- I, to give a exa- personal example, I don't remember a time in my life of not knowing that God is there, that God loves me and knowing that I love God back. I've certainly had moments where I felt it more strongly, but my walk with God has been more of a lifetime of knowledge of God's love, 
I've known other people who it was a sudden awakening experience when they were later, uh, later in life, maybe as an adult, where they have that moment of decision, where they be, have that first moment where they know that, yeah, God is here, God is with me. In both ways, both experiences, that mustard seed of God's work for us is living into the individual. And so as the person grows, as that person lives into that mustard seed faith, they desire to share it with others, whether it be with a very, very evangelical bent or if it's more, a little bit more laid back. Whatever it may be, the heart of God is one in which his kingdom is always expanding and his kingdom will continue to expand until Christ returns. And so I want to encourage you today, yes, evangelize. Yes, share the gospel with all of your friends, but make sure that you're doing it not as a legalism, not as something where you're doing it because I have to do this, but because you're changing, because something is happening inside of you as a result of your relationship with God. That is the gospel message. That is the gospel promise. That as you lean into the things that God gives to you for spiritual growth, that he will grow you spiritually. And as you mature, you will find yourself with more and more opportunities to share the gospel with others. I hope that you're looking for those opportunities and I hope that you're growing into mustard seed people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that out of the smallest things you can, you can grow mighty nations. Out of the smallest things you can grow a mighty faith and mighty decisions to follow you. Lord, as we go throughout our week this week, help us live as a people who are uh, recognizing that you are the foundation and that in that foundation we are called to glorify you. Help us to grow in relationship to you through the power of your Holy Spirit and then help us to share it with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.